Let me uh, begin today by asking what I think actually is the most important question in this Genesis 32 story. The most important question is, why would God physically wrestle with this man, Jacob? Why would the God of the universe send some sort of heavenly embodied emissary to struggle and to strive with Jacob? And I think that's probably the most important question. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. He's a patriarch to the family or of the family through whom God promised to bless and redeem the whole world. There is a lot at stake, to say the least. And that, I think, is our first clue. And before we dive deeper into the story, let me talk to you about something for, for three minutes. And I do think it relates to what Paul was saying uh, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. It's important that we don't flatten this story out into just an inspiring lesson about character change or about persistence in prayer. Don't flatten it out. Um, though our gospel reading today, it does do what the lectionary does by tying persistence in prayer in with Jacob's dogged pursuit of blessing, and that's great. It makes sense. But it's also important that this, uh, that this story and its details are historical. Historical. Someone asked a great question on Tuesday night at Anglicans 101. As I was explaining that this liturgy, this story that we're telling, this Sunday communion liturgy, it's telling the story of redemption and it's linking past, present, and future. It's also the expectation that heaven and earth are uniting and that story itself is cohering in some mysterious way. And this was the question that he asked. He said, is it potentially a problem for us to refer to this as a story? In other words, by calling it a story, are we in danger of suggesting that it's just a drama about beautiful and important human ideas, such as resurrection? Everybody loves the idea of resurrection, right? Of, you know, of forgiveness and transformation and being renewed. Couldn't people settle for you know, this story just being meaningful and inspirational, even if it's not necessarily historical or true? Don't we need more inspiration in our lives? It's a really, really important question. Because that's exactly what has happened in the American church, in our tradition, and in others. In the 20th century, a significant influence in the church began to suggest, many of you know this, that the Christian faith doesn't need to be historical to be meaningful. It doesn't have to be true to be good. Can't these just basically unbelievable stories, can't they just serve us as parables or allegories about universal human goodness? Do we need to believe that Jesus really miraculously healed people for us to embrace the idea and the, the importance of caring for the sick and the lame? Wasn't he just maybe telling us something? Can't resurrection just be a powerful idea about a changed life, a new start? We know that people don't actually rise from the dead. So can't we just retain our thoughtful traditions and our inspiring ceremonies that tell this very compelling story in the context of community, which is also good? Two things. One, this dumbing down was already happening in the first centuries of the church, and it's all over the New Testament. We're not stumbling upon some new way of seeing things because of our modern sensibilities. 
And two, we're tethered to two millennia of Christians. And I think this is maybe one of the most compelling things about, about what we believe. The earliest of whom, the nearest to it, the eyewitnesses even, suffered in the catacombs and coliseums of Rome for more than moral ideas and meaningful ceremonies. Would you suffer for that? They believed it was true, historical, real, and they lived it. There's archaeological evidence. There's historical evidence as good as any other historical evidence. So we should reject this as nothing less than an anachronism, right? It gets history wrong. It insults the lives of our forebears. We should reject the idea that because we know more in this area about, uh, era about many things that we know, apparently know more about everything. We don't. In fact, there's a case that could be made that we know less. We're kind of dumber in a lot of ways. Can I just say it? So we profess not only that Jesus was truly raised in the power of the Holy Spirit, but also that God came near, actually came near, to strive with Jacob on the banks of the Jabbok River in the county of Seir, the rugged terrain in modern-day southern Israel between Wadi al-Gumwair and Ras and Nagm. There it happened. And this is where we pick up the story. Up to this point, Jacob has spent his life striving with everyone to get more and to be more. He's pushed and he's pulled by ambition and expectation. He probably has a codependent relationship with his mom. His character is suspect. But he is the one through whom the blessing of God for all humanity must necessarily flow. This was God's promise to Abraham. And that promise looks like it could be in jeopardy because of one dude. In the looming confrontation here, that's where we find ourselves in the story with his brother Esau, Jacob's issues are catching up with him. That's just putting it mildly. He's about to face his paternal twin, whom he impersonated to fool his blind father, Isaac, into giving him this verbal blessing that would have and should have belonged to Esau instead who was the elder. And, you know, let's be honest, Esau just happened to emerge first as twins. And we find out that he had his problems too. He was a very, the Bible says, a very sensuous and impulsive man, clearly. He's not the guy that, like, you want carrying on the blessing and the inheritance. He sold his, what would have been a third portion, you know, so each son would get a a portion and a third was added, and, and Esau would have gotten that as well. But he traded that away for soup. But he was the oldest, and he was his father's favorite. Imagine working through that if you're Jacob a little bit. Comes with his own set of issues. But primogenitor was the order of the day. The oldest comes first. So Rebecca and Jacob, they, they found a way to circumvent it for what would seem to them to be the greater good. But this verbal blessing that came from their father Isaac, it wasn't something you just reverse and go, oh, I didn't mean it, and I thought you were somebody else. This proclamation mattered, and it was to be uttered once, and it was heard by the household. And you can't put the words back in. And so when Isaac blessed Jacob as his heir to the promise, it was done. It was done, done. And now, after many years of being the same sort of human, Jacob is quaking in his sandals. He's got to pay the piper. 
Esau is coming with 400 men, which seems like overkill. But Jacob has, and he's already prayed this desperate prayer in verses 9 through 12. They're not in our reading today. He's asking God to help, right? He's already strategized by sending extra livestock and people to Esau as a gift to either soften him up or maybe to slow him down or both. And so now Jacob is dealing in worst-case scenarios. He divides his camp, and he finally sends his own immediate household across the ford of the Jabbok. He's done everything he can do, and now he must wait. Which stinks very often. He's alone, and the struggle finds him. We're actually meant to see, not that he went out for a little quiet time, there's nothing to suggest that, He's passively, he's found himself alone. God got him alone to answer his prayer for help. But surprise, surprise, it doesn't come in the manner he's expecting. Because here's the fundamental thing. Esau is not Jacob's problem. Jacob is Jacob's problem. And Jacob is God's problem. So we should see the humanity here actually in Jacob being Jacob's problem. No, this story isn't written to actually raise our personal self-awareness of people in the 21st century West. Again, not just a lesson, but it does provide some fodder for that. For us to think about this a little bit, it might be that we think of the problem or the threat in our situation uh, as external of us always, but it might actually be a bit closer to home. Maybe you've learned that lesson and are still learning it. I'm still learning it. To be sure, though, some of us inordinately believe we're the problem all or most of the time, right? Some of us live, you know, we let every difficult situation bury us under the next wave of, of guilt or shame. It must be my fault is the default. But still others of us, and maybe more of us, can only see what's going on out there and with you, and with them, right? And imagining we're only ever seeing the, the clearest, or we're only ever the victims. And it can't be a problem of us. And we know that this reality can be endemic in marriages, and in families, and really wherever people are together, right? And it, of course, gives rise to self-protective measures that harden our personal defenses, that raises our walls, and it makes it that much more difficult to actually not only see the real complexity that characterizes most of our conflict and most of our drama, it makes it harder to see ourselves. So Jacob's deeper problem is Jacob. And half the time, Seth's deeper problem is Seth. But the real threat to Jacob's legacy is not this rustic and ruddy, soup-loving man just over the hill marching his way with 400 people, as scary as that is. The real threat is actually this corrosive lack of integrity that's eroding everything Jacob touches. And what he touches matters to God. He's a problem for the promise. So Jacob struggled with the father he deceived. He struggled with the father-in-law he cheated. You might argue that in some ways he struggled with this mother who put him under compulsion. We don't know all the ins and outs of that. You can go back and read the story. And here he is struggling with the brother he manipulated. Still struggling. And he has lived up to the name Yaakov, which sounds like the Hebrew word for heel. 
And really the name was just given him because his tiny hand was gripping Esau's heel when the elder twin emerged from the womb, which would have been really weird looking. But he was there. He was ready to come out too. He's grabbing Esau's heel. So they name him a word that sounds like heel. Let me just say a quick word about names since they matter to the story. And they probably mattered a good bit more. We think, you know, it's pretty clear they mattered a good bit more the meaning and the pronunciation and all of that in the ancient Near East. But they weren't always meant to be literal. They weren't meant to be self-fulfilling. They weren't meant to be defining all the time. They might just tell a story, as in this case, or simply be clever or creative. And yet, they might also carry a little more weight, such as when we see, and we talked about last week, this despondent Naomi from the story of Ruth. She didn't want to be called by her given name, which means pleasant. She wanted to be called Mara, which means bitter. So in our day, names are a little bit similar. It's like, you know, the name Ernest just means battles to the death. If you know anybody named Ernest... You know anybody whose name is Campbell, first or last name, it just means crooked mouth. It does. Not every Emily is a rival, nor is every Courtney graced with a short nose. So you get it. These na- you know, names have all these layers of meaning, and in, but in Jacob's case, his name was actually carrying greater weight because to talk about you know, a heel, it could also connotate that, that this Jacob... You know, he's Yaakov in a deeper sense of the word, is a heel grabber who cheats others, who trips up others. He's a supplanter, he's a conniver, he's a circumventer. And so he's living into that aspect of the name, deeper and more insidious. And the Lord has called him back to his homeland, and now the Lord must interrupt the story of the cheater. The story that Jacob's been telling himself thinking he's the cunning hero or he's the desperate victim. Verse 24 tells us that the wrestling match lasted all night, and Jacob doesn't initially know who the opponent is because he's exhausted, probably weary, and in a half-dream state. But he's simply going to win, or at least he thinks he is. This always, completely unrelated, but sort of always makes me think of the midsummer day that my older brother Jamie and I pulled out the sleeper sofa to watch the 84 Summer Olympics. And instead, it turned into an all-day wrestling match, interspersed with judo and some fencing, in which we knocked the rabbit ears off the TV and never really got a clear picture back. We laughed, we cried, we threatened each other through purple Kool-Aid mustaches. We were bruised, we were exhausted, we were exhilarated. And you know what? I think we were kind of blessed. But Jacob's not wrestling with his brother. He's not wrestling with his father, Isaac, or his father-in-law, Laban. And it's not that he's just so formidable that this celestial visitor can't get him into a tight figure four and tap him out. In this moment, the heel grabber is a picture. He's unwittingly the writhing physical embodiment of his moral and emotional state. He is a clamoring expression of humanity and even God's people to come. He's animated by our, as humanity, our own ill-conceived ideas and our own ill-conceived pursuits circumventing and supplanting the will of God. And he won't give up. He can't. It's who he is. So his divine opponent touches his hip, 
which is probably better translated, struck his hip and knocked it out of joint. And this is a serious blow. These are not fingers or shoulders or elbows that pop out easier. I mean, the hip joint has the strongest network of muscles surrounding the upper ball of the femur. This is a blow, man. So he's breaking into a fresh sweat from the pain, but now he's seeing clearly in the light of day. And all a weakened Jacob can do is hang on. I love the way Frederick Beekner tells it. He says, The darkness has faded just enough so that for the first time he can dimly see his opponent's face. And what he sees is something more terrible than the face of death. He sees the face of love. The face of love. This weakening blow serves the interest of an awakening. This is not just another sunrise in the rugged mountains. He is realizing the singularity of the moment, and that what does he do? He begs for a blessing because I think he realizes now that the blessing that he stole from his brother simply won't do anymore. You bless me. And the answer to his request, friends, is another serious blow, and I think it hits bone deep. I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? What is your name? Yaakov. Then he said, your name shall no longer be Yaakov, but Yisrael. For you have striven with God, you've striven with men, and you've prevailed. And then Jacob asked, and this is important, this isn't tacked on for conversation. He asked, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And I think that's a poignant response. The new name that is given Jacob actually tells him everything he needs to know about the one with whom he has just contended and who is about to bless him. The name isn't really about him at at all. Israel means literally God strives. God strives. Jacob has come hand-to-hand with the God who strives with man, who will not relent until we, until the whole world we inhabit is transformed and transfigured and blessed. The story is about God. Though we rightly commend and we commemorate Jacob as one who would not let go of God in this desperate moment, this story is fundamentally about God's relentlessness, the God who strives to fulfill His promises. Jacob's people, born of his 12 sons, into 12 tribes, they will come to bear the name Israel, and they will learn its meaning to the fullest in every generation as God strives with them. They will come to know the God who fulfills the promise, His promises by means of a broken people, not in spite of them. The God who strives with man is the one who fulfills His promises through broken people, not in spite of them. The people whose transformation he initiates and empowers, even through or especially through the pain and struggle that singularly awakens them and us. It hurts, but it's holy. And in this story, we see nothing short of the foreshadowing of our God who will ultimately bring another victory out of another apparent defeat. Do you see it? 
as he does what? As he strives with sin, both personal and systemic. The God made flesh who didn't tighten his grip on transcendent power, but who came near in weakness. The God who allowed himself to be clutched by dirty hands and seized by hard hearts. The Messiah who overcomes the betrayal of his friends, the hypocrisy of bad religion, and the brutality of an empire. But through this self-giving, through this self-emptying, he bestowed the blessing. The blessing he always intended. And always intends. The blessing he's holding out to us again today. To you again today. In the hope of our transformation. Friends, this is the God who came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jacob had made his bed, and we have too. But this is a God who comes to us and has come to us and is coming to us. We've lived into our stories of futility and self-interest, trying to change God's story even, to serve our own interests and preferences, creating myths out of it. But God remains the covenant God who strives even with us, calling us to a life of cross-bearing by which we experience our union with the Lord. Hard things, taking up the burdens of the world, striving in prayer even, and this longing for shalom that will one day come. Because what is it? What is it? It's, it's a longing for a divine blessing. Bless me. I'm not going to let go of you. Come what may. A longing for divine blessing that is fulfilled each day. In the good and bad, through our ongoing transformation, and our transfiguration because God comes to Jacob because he sees more than Jacob God comes to us because he sees more than what we see in ourselves and in others so may we cling to him may you cling to him all the more tightly may he bless you may he bless us even if it means we limp away healed because that's our calling and our destiny There's nothing better than that. Do you believe it?